Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta open the damn document oh. first. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, today, we are going to do an Ask Weeds Anything episode. Uh, we got some great questions here in the Facebook uh, chat. Uh, a lot of good stuff. Every time I start reading these, I, in my first glance is like, how are we going to get a show out of this? And by the end, I'm like, oh my God, how are we possibly going to address all the good questions here? So we probably won't. But let's start with by far the most important political issue of the day. Uh, Chris Copley asks, is the open office the worst productivity concept of the 21st century? Is it? No. <laughs> and w- we were just talking about this, and I think that um, I think w- we came to the conclusion that one of the challenges with open offices, which, if you if you're unaware of what an open office is, it's essentially probably whatever you have. If you're unaware of what an open office is, I have lots of questions about your class <laughs> status in the 21st century. Well, that's my question because I think that for many people, like for instance, of my parents' age, the concept of an open office where people don't really have offices is like a relatively newfangled idea, but for people of our ilk and the class status, the open office is de rigueur. I believe I've only, let's see, I've worked in, I've had many jobs and the vast majority have been open office situations. But in general, the open office, I think is, it is itself to me value neutral. It's just how many people are in the open office, how loud are the people in the open office, and are one of the people in the open office me who likes to stop by and say hello to people and talk with their mouths, which some people apparently don't like. Well, so this is theoretically the reason you have open right. offices, right? Like the the hypothetical, the like idealist argument for open offices is you want to create an environment in which people feel that they can collaborate without having to, like, set up meetings or interrupt their colleagues. The problem with that, of course, is that generally in an office environment, some people are trying to buckle down and get work done at any given time. And so if you're when I was at Vox, I had maybe the most central position in the in in our kind of big office bullpen, right next to the slush pile with all the review copies of books. Lots of opportunities for people to gather and talk about things that were very important to what they were doing at that time while I needed to be buckling down and writing. And it's not, that's just, it's a difficult dynamic to deal with. 
but it doesn't necessarily like the the alternative of assuming that everyone is buckled down all the time really does have some costs when you need to be kind of working out ideas as colleagues. I think that actually as much guff as Slack, the quote unquote productivity software that has just kind of been adopted as like general professional chat software among the same class of companies that are imposing open offices on their employees, as much guff as Slack gets for forcing people to be always on, for kind of erasing the uh, distinction between doing work and just talking to your colleagues. What Vox has done a really good job of, in my opinion, and uh, ProPublica, I think, is still trying to work this dynamic out, is using Slack as a way to kind of serve that same collaboration function while people who need to be tapped out to work can be tapped out to work. And, like, that is, you know, it's getting in the same direction. And it also has the benefit of, you know, if you have multiple office locations, you're not disadvantaging people who are in a smaller office. Uh, Like the the New York ProPublica office is this wonderfully collaborative space. And I feel bad about all of the people who I don't get to like walk by and talk to because they're in a different city. So there's, there are arguments to be made, but like, It's definitely not an ideal situation to kind of have de facto, you can never work as long as anyone beside you needs to be having a conversation. Well, so, okay. So I think it's important, just as you were saying with Slack in some ways, to distinguish between the idealized form of the open office and the reality of the open office, right? Because I have actually worked in in a a range of different office setups, right? And the, the main traditional alternative to the open office is the kind of cubicle farm. Right now, some people would have offices with doors, the highest status people, but most people would be at cubicle desks where there are walls designed to create a sense of visio-spatial privacy, right? And the idealized version of the move to an open office, which I think makes some sense, is you tear down the cubicle walls without that additional padding each individual person is actually occupying less space, right? So then you have a big open field. And then with the space that you save, you create new private areas, right? So just like on Slack, right, like you can put up an icon that's like, I really just need to write this thing now. You can stand up from your table, go to the more private area, and buckle down and write. I think in practice what's happening, you guys were saying like everybody uses open offices now, which I don't think is true. I think actually if you go to a suburban office park, right, that like the greater Dallas-Fort Worth area is dotted with white-collar office jobs, most of which are not downtown, you know, like tower-centric in cheap real estate. I think you will see people in traditional cubicle-style offices. But what has happened in D.C., in New York, in San Francisco, markets that are very expensive, is that employers are using the open office not to create extra space for solo work, but just to economize on space, right? And that's not good. But also, it's not its not the open office's fault, right? Like, if you took the square footage per employee that Vox has and tried to give us all individual offices, we would, like, be in prison cells, and it would be incredibly <laughs> depressing, right? It's just that, like, revenue in journalism is not that high and the commercial real estate market is expensive and it leaves you with, like, would we all want a pay cut and have a better office? Like, probably not, right? It's a bummer. It is. You can't always get what you want. It is. And it's worth noting that part of this discussion came about because Michael Bloomberg tweeted about how if he became president, he would essentially turn the West Wing into a giant open office. And then he posted a picture of, like, what it would look like. And people reacted 
you know, as people <laughs> tend to do on the internet. Uh, I believe vociferously is the term one could use. Also, it was a funny idea. His if you know, like the the West Wing of the, it wouldn't work. No, right. there, it absolutely the, have. If you if you've ever been on the uh, White House tour, one of the things you learn quickly is that the White House is kind of built like a weird ship. It's smaller than you think it is, and an open office would not work. Well, I also think that it's kind of amazing to look at the current executive branch, like the, the to look at the Trump administration and say, you know, the problem here is that the cost <laughs> of walking in and starting a conversation is too high. They're not, they're collaborating enough. Um, I mean, one thing is right. So there's obviously a lot of people dealing with segmented classified information in the West Wing. Um, there are rooms down there, right, where like if you go in for a meeting with certain people, you have to surrender yourself phone to somebody else because you're going into a Faraday cage and they have printers that are disconnected from the rest of the network. Like, there's no way you could do a Nobel offices. I do think it is weird. A weird fact about the American government is that for sort of historic preservation-y reasons, the people, like, running the mightiest empire the world has ever known have, like, very cramped and dingy office spaces. And, like, it's not like we couldn't build just, like, a bigger building for them to work in, uh, but we we choose not to. Right. Um, Okay. Should we we take take on some other ones? Let's do it. Flynn Pollard asked us, after laying out some context, uh, including the the phrase Andrews Yang or Donald Trump or Tom Steyer or whomever's whomever, which total props for that— asks, what would you like to see in the professional profile of a person who has never held public office but is running for president? Yeah, and he stipulated, like, you can't, you can't like, as a cop-out, say, like, well, a general right, or right. A, a senior career diplomat. I mean, I kind of think—I don't think the businessman-president idea is sound, but within those constraints, I think you probably do want a businessman, but probably not a Tom Steyer or Andrew Yang or— Donald Trump-type businessman, I I think someone who has been the chief executive of, like, a big, boring company. So, like, if you ran Pepsi or you ran McDonald's, you have just dealt with a lot of people, right? You have a lot of people who report to you. You have a lot of vendors and suppliers who you deal with. You operate in a lot of different countries. And you probably know a lot about just dealing with stuff. Right. These are not like the sexiest kinds of business people, like the very richest people tend to be innovators. They like founded companies and and, and they went really far. But I think that those are not really like presidenting skills, no. like inventing something amazing. That's just like actually not how policy works. Right. Whereas there is a lot of like running things getting things done, dealing with the fact that there are a bunch of different people who want slightly different things and you need to hammer out some kind of a compromise. And to me, that's like closest, outside the governmental world, that seems closest to running a big, boring, multinational company where like you're not going to come in and be like, what we need to do is have a totally new product that isn't soda at all. But like you do need to like, can we ship the soda faster? Right. Can we make it cheaper? Can we develop a better relationship with our distributors? And that's like, you know, the government is boring, and boring companies are also boring. So yeah, I would actually boring. go in completely the opposite direction, which is given what the Ameri- given what we've seen over the 21st century in terms of what the American people kind of want their president to do as like in fulfilling a head of state function which includes a lot of kind of 
what you might call the like comforter in chief soft skills or just I think we saw in both the Obama and Trump phenomena the idea of having a president who can create like public spaces that feel euphoric for particular groups of people. So you want like a movie Can do a lot. I actually know. I'm thinking megachurch pastor, right? Which like has a certain (laughs) amount of, you know, organizational skills, but also is someone who has found a way to express, you know, fairly narrow theological commitments in a way that makes a lot of people, that that sounds broad enough that a lot of people get on board. (laughs) My thought is, I'm actually quite taken by Matt's point because I was thinking that one of the challenges we have so much is like that we've kind of fetishized innovation (laughs) to the point where we're just like, ooh, Elon Musk seems smart when he's basically like, you know, the subway, what if you let me do it? But I was listening to a podcast recently that was about um, kind of how companies fail. And one of the companies I talked about was Schlitz Beer, which made a decision in the 70s to change its formula. Uh And it got into the discussion of how one of the things about Budweiser that's amazing, if you think about it, is that every single can or bottle of Budweiser tastes exactly the same. It It has not changed. It will not change. If you have a Budweiser like tomorrow or 10 years from now or in Kuala Lumpur, it's all the same. And that's kind of a tremendous achievement in a weird way. And I think like I kind of I like Matt's point, but also I am loathe to say that the best president would be the head of a big company because I don't think that I think that being president is should be I don't know. There's something to be said about how the presidency we have so separated it from one, not just the executive branch, but from the from government writ large, that we you know when we're thinking like when people genuinely were like, Oprah should run for president, and Oprah's like, I would rather not run for president. But we like think of that as being a good idea. I don't know. I think that I, I would be, I don't know. I'm I agree with Matt, but I wish I did not agree with Matt. <laughs> <laughs> you wanna ask a question? I do. Um so I thought this question was interesting because um, it gets at something that I think a lot of people watching Democratic primary are interested in or watching presidential races at all. So Debbie Stein asked, how do candidates put forward their policies which cannot be enacted but do define their positions without raising unrealistic hopes? How do we as voters get them to put forward what their top realistic priorities would be so we have a real sense of what their administrations would do? I don't know. Um, I think that there's a lot of, and we see this kind of democratic race, a lot of people putting forth policies that are more like, here is my marker of who I am and not this is what I would actually do. But then again, we also have candidates who are like, this is both my marker and what I would actually do and what I've been saying I would do for 40 years. So I'm interested to hear from both of you and your thoughts on this question. I mean, I think that there is, I, I think that this really is a key question that, you know, not just people, not just from an analytical perspective, but like, if you consider yourself an engaged citizen who is making choices about preferred candidates, you should really be thinking a lot metacognitively about, am I getting invested in the promise in in the promises that this candidate is making in a way that is going to sour me on them if they cannot deliver an office or am i interested in this as a vector of change and there are things that i'm willing to let slide in practice um but the kind of cop out easy answer here is that the reason we find ourselves in a dynamic where candidates keep promising things that they have no way of being able to deliver is that we have defined policy in a primary as legislative proposals, which is not how the American system of government works. And if we had a primary where 
if we had or if we had like a campaign structure generally where candidates were more comfortable and better rewarded for talking about the things that are much less subject to external veto points. Uh, I mean, personnel and hiring is like personnel as policy is the obvious example, but like even then you do have to deal with confirm, you know, the politics of Senate confirmation, that kind of thing. If we had more of a conversation about how a p- potential candidate for the presidency in particular would run the executive branch or, you know, how a particular legislator would, when they, as a general rule, they would want to vote with their party and when they think it would be worth it to take a vote against it, we might have a system where you understood what your candidate was going to do as a politician, not just the world they wanted to see. Yeah, so a slightly old man thought on this is that, like, Over the course of the campaigns that I have covered in in my lifetime, two different trends have happened that are a little bit at cross purposes. One is that the coverage has become more policy focused. If you go back to the 2004 cycle, it was like very unclear like what those people were running on exactly. This culture of like the policy rollout and the white papers and the write-ups online and the people arguing about them didn't really exist. Candidates were instead expected to put out like maybe one or two kind of signature things just to show that they could, Uh, but they campaigned in a much vaguer way. At the same time, the parties have become – we've had a lot of, um, I I think, what they call conflict extension, but where basically almost everything becomes sorted out on partisan lines. And so in practice, that means that the greater policy clarity is less valuable than it would have been. Hearing from a Democratic candidate in the 2004 race that they support a comprehensive immigration reform deal featuring a path to citizenship for the undocumented paired with increased spending on border security uh, would have actually been informative because many Democrats in Congress did not support that. Like most did, but many didn't. So knowing whether or not you supported that was providing you with actual information, right? Whether that meant you could actually deliver on that or not you know, was a different thing, but still saying what you favored, like, told you something. Mm -hmm. Um, There are fewer and fewer issues where that is the case. Um, You know, I think we're left among Democrats at this point on trade policy as really the thing where it is not obvious to me what direction a a Democratic president would would sort of row the boat. Um, So instead we have, like, 90 billion, like, iterations of here's how I would do more to combat climate change. But they're all saying I would do more to combat climate change, right? And it would be interesting to try to get – this actually comes from citizens, right? To instead of saying, okay, my most important issue is healthcare, so I'm going to ask everyone about their healthcare plan, you should say the issue on which I am least clear where the Democratic Party as a whole stands is trade. So I'm going to ask the candidates about trade, right? And in that case, pressing them for specifics and details would be very generative. But but the problem is, is that the party is most united on the issues that are most important to the base. So people keep wanting to ask about the things the Democrats don't really disagree about, and then they fight about the sort of non-implementable details. And it's not that productive. Um, and I think that's like this whole big, I think, like, big picture question of, like, what are we doing with the primary process? 
Like, like, what are we trying to accomplish? Because I do feel like this thing, which is that Democrats are really jazzed up about health care. So they want to ask their elected officials where they stand on health care. So then they talk about non-implementable details. Like, that's not good, right? Like, that's not – whatever it is people think they're trying to achieve in this, we are not successfully achieving it. Uh, but, you know – Democrats don't care that much about trade, which is why there's disagreement and why we have no clarity where the candidates stand. Right. Bummer. Ugh. Wow, we've already gotten ourselves into a... No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Okay, so so here. We, we had one for Jane specifically. Do you see a path for the Republican Party to move forward from culture war and fear-based politics? I think that one of the challenges, and we got a couple of questions about kind of what is conservatism? What Like, what will conservatism look like after Trump? Um, one of the challenges is, one, the idea, the idea of the culture war— is uh, from the kind of Andrew Breitbart perspective that politics is downstream of culture and that in order to take change politics, you have to change culture. Now, there are a bunch of kind of populist, kind of post-liberal conservatives who are now like, actually, we can use politics to change things, which is hence talking about banning pornography or kind of using legislature to make moral decisions. But I think that in general, like culture war or just kind of deba- you, the idea that culture is representative of a larger truth, I don't think that's going to go away. And I also think that one of the challenges is, um, you know, as I was saying, is that conservatism is inherently in opposition to something. You know, it's standing athwart something. It is saying that we don't want this. You know, progressives suggest something. Conservatives say we don't want that. So it's, I think it's not so much fear exactly as it is a reaction to something, a reaction, a pushback. A, and so I think that when you talk to some conservatives, even the idea of putting for you know, the government should do this is to them inherently unconservative. The idea of like doing something or that action should be taken implies a kind of positive and I don't mean that in kind of a moral sense. I mean kind of a either moving forward or moving backwards sense. Um, I think that you know the idea of a Republican Party that is not in reaction to something is to me. Uh, I don't. I don't see it. I, I mean that's like, what conservatism yeah, is I for, think, right? I, yeah. I mean. There's, like, crazy progressives who want to do something crazy. Right. And then you have a conservative that, like, like, stands by what's valuable. And then, But I also think that uh, the second part of this question was, could we see a respectable conservative political party in our lifetimes? And I think that one of the challenges when you talk to conservatives about this is they're basically like, well, you did. You had, you know, you had— to them, you know, you had very nice Mitt Romney or very nice John McCain, even though now a lot of conservatives have decided they hate both of those people. But, you know, whatever. And I think that the I, the thought, especially in American politics, because I actually get this question a lot talking to folks overseas, is like, you know, we have conservatives, we have conservative parties in our countries. Why do they look so different? One, you know, the very specific context of American politics. And two, I think that what conservatism has looked like has always been in a sense that, you know, we do this thing 
Um, and I would compare it to uh, if you follow college football. Sometimes if you follow a particular college football team, you are really, really mad at whoever your quarterback is. And you're like, our quarterback is awful. And then your quarterback graduates, and then you're like, oh, God, I miss that quarterback so much. I remember the one time when he did the thing that I liked him doing. I feel sometimes that we think about the GOP in this way, that like, oh, like let's get back to like respectable conservatives. And I think you've seen that a lot when people talk about kind of never-Trump folks as just being like, ah, you know, they, this is when, you know, the when George George W. Bush was president. That's when the GOP was normal. And I'm like, does that, like, the 2004, like, presidential election was real weird. And so I think that sometimes our, you know, the idea of, like, could we get back to respectability? And even sometimes Joe Biden doing this, this idea of, like, well, it used to be different. It used to be normal. No, none of this ever used to be different and or normal, depending on your perspective. And I think that one of the challenges is that conservatism is as fractured as liberalism. It's weird to use the term liberalism to mean that, but it, it's fractured and complicated, and a lot of people within it are angry at each other. And that kind of influences what the GOP looks like now. So I, I don't know. I don't think I think that this is kind of what we're just going to be doing for a while. <laughs> Nice. Joel Howe asked, Matt has mentioned uh, something along the lines of if enough people left big cities for smaller towns, it would eliminate the Republican advantage in the Electoral College and lower the cost of housing for those people who remained in the cities. Assuming you could do your job just as well from a small town, what would it take to convince you to move? What are the features of a small town that would attract Dane? Dane, wow, I can't pronounce our names. Jane, Dara, and Matt to live there. Uh, we actually, we talked about this a little bit when we interviewed Pete Buttigieg at South by Southwest last year, uh, because of course, Mayor Pete has is is firmly on team. People who are raised in, you know, the interior of the country should move back. And I think Jane and I both have pretty strong mm -hmm. personal reasons not to do that. <laughs> but like, I have thought a little bit about this because it's not as if, it's, it's not as if I've never been anywhere in the interior of the country that I've looked around and gone, oh, I could live here. Um, I have often kind of joked that if my partner and I are on book leave at the same time, we could easily like live in Bloomington, Indiana for a year. But if my partner and I are on book leave at the same time, we're probably going to kill each other anyway. Um, so, you know, where we're living is the, the least of my concerns. But fundamentally, the thing for me is that having that given that I now live in a place where I can easily take mass transit to see friends who live in other cities. And that is a, you know, it's, it is both geographically relatively close and not something that I have to engage in a humongous amount of planning to do. It's really hard for me to imagine moving somewhere where I don't have easy access to see people who I don't live in the same city as. And that is just kind of a, you know, maybe this is a high-speed rail problem, but that for me is the biggest, you know, as as the actual job that I'm doing becomes a little bit less tied to, you know, the details of being in D.C., the thing that that's kind of the hump that I can't get over. Yeah, I think for me, and I've talked about this a little bit before, if you listen to, I believe, uh, one of the episodes we did in Austin um, for the Texas Tribune Podcast Festival, one of my biggest challenges is that I haven't driven a car in 10 years. I have never had a driver's license. Um, and I've well, talked, I've, yeah, that makes two of us. I've talked about this with my spouse, but part of the reason why I never got my my driver's license is that when I was in high school, uh, a girl the year older than me was killed instantly in a car accident when she was uh, pulling out of the church parking lot where she was performing in a Christmas pageant as the Virgin Mary. 
And when someone you know, like even tangentially, is killed horribly when you're like 13 years old, it really kind of puts you off the whole concept, especially because in Cincinnati, and you know, for folks who know the Midwest, like my high school was off of a major, the Blue Ash exit off I-71. Like to get to my high school in the most efficient way required getting, going, you know, off the Red Bank exit on 71 to the Blue Ash exit on 71, which is not that far, but it's also a giant, massive highway full of cars that are terrifying. And so I've actually, you know, I I told my spouse that 2020 is going to be the year I get my driver's license, despite even having this conversation filling me with anxiety and fear. But it is wild to me. Um, When I lived in Chicago, that was something, you know, Chicago being a big spread out place with fairly good public transportation, but still spread out in the way the Midwest is, it was fascinating to me how much of a limiting factor the fact that I don't drive is. And it was, it's interesting how so much of this conversation, it's not just like, oh, you could just, you know, move from D.C. or New York to Cincinnati or Columbus or any other area, because I think that the, it's not just, it's, you know, the uh, reasons why people who moved away don't move back is not just because we've become cultural imperialists, but, you know, we have, but so you know, let's not <laughs> lie. But I think that there is something to be said about, like, the very makeup of what makes Midwestern or Southern or Western cities different is in some ways, I mean, for me, literally unworkable. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I have a different experience of this than most people. Because most people I know in, in D.C. grew up in the suburbs somewhere and then moved to the big city at some point and either will leave uh, when they have kids or will stay because they like it. Um, whereas I, like, I grew up in Manhattan. This is the only place I've lived other than New York. Uh, it is smaller. I, I like it better. I live now in a row house, but that, to me, compared to the apartment that I grew up in, like, it's a single-family home. I have a basement. I have a garage. I own a car. And we didn't have any of that stuff when I was growing up. There's a a washer and dryer in my house. I have a garbage disposal. Um, I have a small yard. I have a grill. Uh, I like it a lot. And I, my hypothesis is that I would enjoy living in a smaller town more. Um, I, I like all that stuff. I'm ready to be a, a, a dad. Uh, you know, I mean, I am a father, but, you know, a, a dad. Um, <laughs> you have not yet achieved your final form of daddery. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying, you know. I, I go to Costco on the weekend. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I can. Um, you know, and, and I would say there's two things. I mean, one is I do appreciate a little walkability, you know, like that. So I would want to live, like, in the middle of my hypothetical small town. And I am also, like, a bit of a big city food snob where I'm, I don't know if this will outrage the Ohioans here, but it's like, when I go to, uh, I would say in general in the South, there's, like, a lot of good food to eat outside of the big cities, and that that is not my experience of New England or the Midwest. And so, you know, I I, I, I love, actually, the small town in Texas uh, where my wife's parents live. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's a ton of fun. Um, I like that everybody has gigantic trucks. Uh, it's cool. Big parking lots. AGB is great. Uh, there's, like, tacos everywhere. Kolaches are good. Um, 
You know, so I'm ready to go. I'm like, I'm really here for work. Like, I, I, I moved to D.C. to get a job covering politics, and I continue to do that and expect I will continue. It's not that I, like, quote-unquote, couldn't do the job uh, just from an internet connection somewhere, but I do think it is better for work covering politics to be in D.C. Uh, and, you know, I, I like my job, and it's important to me. So, you know, here I am. But I, I also think small it's, towns are good. I also think it's worth recognizing, and I think people don't, Say people don't say this enough. I know we do. I know. I know we do. Which, (laughs) whatever. But I think it's also important to note that a lot of times when we're talking, not so much about New York, because I think I think people can understand why people like New York. But there is this idea that like DC is a terrible, awful place that people are forced to be here for, and that we should move away. But I actually quite like DC. Like not of you know, there's DC like official DC tourism DC, and then there's like U Street and Columbia Heights and like fun Petworth and tacos and sure. cocktail bars and places. Move to D.C. for the tacos. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I've heard worse pitches. It's a great city. I highly recommend I it. I like D.C. It's a great place to live, it especially is. U Street, the place to be. We're more, more taquerias opening yeah, in the near future. Yeah, see? It's delightful. Um, okay, should, should we ask a question about something serious? Yes. Like uh, Rebecca Heidewitz wants to know about sour cream or applesauce. Are we are we talking about putting on latkes? Yes. I mean, the answer. I I sh- I feel like I cannot really answer this yeah, question. Yeah, I was going though, to say, please. Jane, Jane can speak please, with authority on this issue. <laughs> Tell I us. Person, I personally am pro just sour cream on latkes, but that's just me. Applesauce. Applesauce is obviously the correct answer here, especially because many of us are lactose intolerant. That's what I'm saying. There's a unique uh, junction between the Jewish people. And uh, not digesting lactose Correct. that well. Which is and what makes it especially horrific that you people who can digest lactose don't understand that Cincinnati chili is one of the highest expressions of cheese. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> like, eight, it's, it's so wasted. Your lactose tolerance is so wasted on you. It's true. <laughs> so there was one question here. Shouldn't it be called Cincinnati bolognese? Linguistically, uh, this actually really bugs me because that's exactly wrong, right? Like, it's not that you're putting a bolognese sauce on no. the city of Cincinnati. And <laughs> and it's also not that it's, like, Cincinnati in the style of Bologna, Italy. Like, no, no, no. 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 It no. made sense to me. Well. There are like some my, questions. Or like just, a ragu. Cincinnati like, ragu. This is like asking Jane to opine on latkes, Matt. You don't get to do it. Uh. <laughs> You'll do it, but you don't get to do it. All right. right. Correct. Jacob Um, Ash wanted book recommendations. Should we do that? Yes. I am, at my core, like the most obvious, you know, coastal elite basic. And I read Patrick Radden Keefe's Say Nothing uh, over kind of the holidays. And it's a tremendous work of narrative nonfiction that also is a primer on the troubles for those of us who weren't alive at that time. And, you know, it kind of like that, it falls into the gap of things that we weren't that weren't far enough in the past that we actually learned about them in history class and aren't immediately relevant enough to current American politics that we kind of had to catch up on them, but are still uh, objectively important to know as an informed individual. So if you haven't checked that out, I strongly recommend it. One of my other challenges is that I have recently developed a complete inability to finish books. If it is longer than like a 4,000-word magazine article, I get— Which a book typically is. It's true. 
uh, regrettably. I mean, this is why I'm like, one, let's get back to serializing novels and magazines, Charles Dickens style. But I will say that one of my favorite books of the last two years was David Blight's uh, biography of Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. I've also been uh, doing some interesting reading about John Brown, um, but I will recommend that once I actually finish the book. Um, I would also say that Matt and I are both big fans of Jack Reacher and Jack Reacher books never disappoint, even when he, even when the author seems still quite unclear on basics of American geography and seems to believe that you can just walk along highways for long periods of time before, without, like, anything coming bad to you. Though, granted, Jack Reacher does have often people come, bad things happen to him, but normally it's like a, a sheriff wants to punch him in the face, not him getting hit by a car. <laughs> I did my year-end reading inventory uh, recently, and I read 35 books uh, in the year 2019, of which 23 were Jack Reacher books. <laughs> Hell yeah. So I think I would definitely recommend uh, start at the beginning with Killing Floor. Um, it's a great one. Uh, you know, uh, the the other book that I read uh, this past year that I thought was interesting and um, – so an, another book that, that that I read last year that I haven't heard discussed a lot, uh, but that I thought was really good was uh, Alan Straussham's uh, The Shadow Emperor, a biography of Napoleon III. Um, Napoleon III is kind of interesting, random historical figure. It is a there are interesting like non obvious parallels to Donald Trump. Uh, to, to Napoleon III. And it's like the kind of analogy that people don't tend to make because not enough Americans would pick up on that reference. It also doesn't lead to like a super bombastic conclusion. It's not like he's like the next Hitler. Um, but, you know, a, an, an anti-democratic figure who very much rose to power by presenting himself as the friend of of the masses uh, while not really governing in that way, but continuing to maintain it as a kind of a viable politics based on a lot of symbolic type issues that were very resonant to people uh, while also standing for, there was a big uh, notion at that time of the party of order, uh, which was definitely something that he stood for and that I think is is in many ways uh, reflective of, of what's going on now. I mean, I don't know. You know, if you don't care at all about 19th century France, I don't know that you need to start learning about this right away. Uh, but I thought it was a really good book, very interesting, and I love 19th century French history. So, and awesome. Jack, read your books. Yes. <laughs> Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. 
You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. We have another question um, from Michael Gonan, and he asks, how should outlets that strive to take arguments from all sides seriously react when a major political coalition makes bad faith argumentation central to not only its conduct, but its political identity? Mm. And I think that that is something that we all deal with. Yeah, um, yeah. There's kind of no one answer to right. this. I think. I think there are in in general, it is good to have. I mean, in general, I think that media outlets have to have a, re, a realistic understanding of who they are going to reach and who they aren't. And one of the things that is upstream of any kind of bad faith argumentation becoming a key like tactical move is the people who you need to quote unquote correct aren't necessarily going to trust you anyway. And so, there, you know, you can kind of adopt the CNN style, like, fact check everybody. Uh, and I think CNN in particular has done a really good job with this in the last few years of not not doing this, not trying to make the point of this, we're going to fact check everybody equally, but we're just going to freaking relentlessly point out, here is a thing that was said that was wrong, here is a thing that was said that was wrong. Um, and I think that that's a useful thing for a— an, nonpartisan, fairly broadly respected outlet to do. But I also think that in practice, a lot of, you know, a lot of the people who are going to be reading Vox, for example, are, aren't necessarily going to be looking to themselves figure out whether an argument being offered by, like, the Republican Party is in good faith. You have to kind of balance the, all right, what are we, can we educate the public in the best way with who are the people who are actually most likely to be looking at our content and what are the things that they might need to level up on or believe? I You don't want to end up in a situation where the fundamental purpose of people consuming content is to own their ideological opponents on the internet by saying you are wrong and, it, and engaging <laughs> in bad faith and here is the link to back it up. And so thinking a little bit creatively about like, yes, you want to inform people about what arguments are being made, but not you don't want to make the purpose of that. You should feel good that your side cares about facts and the other side doesn't. I think it's important. I, I think in some ways uh, accusations of bad faith get flung around too quickly uh, and in too much of a, a, a hazy kind of way. But I think it's important to actually bear down on the concept of bad faith and think about it seriously. Because I do think there's a big problem here, right? And I think one thing people in media should think about when they hear a, a partisan of some kind making an argument is, do I believe that this person would care about this if the shoe was on the other foot, right? And there are elements where that is clearly, clearly, clearly true. 
right? Like if the Republican governor of uh, Massachusetts signed a bill dramatically expanding public funding for abortion services, pro-life Republicans would be mad about that. Right? Like, they, they really would, right? So when they complain about Democratic Party politicians doing that, that is good faith, right? Even if you think their arguments are dumb or their values are repugnant, like, that is clearly a real thing that motivates a lot of people. By the same token, when Republicans profess to be concerned that family members of Joe Biden were profiting in an indirect way from his holding office in the Obama administration, we know that that is bad faith because they are not raising objections to the exact same thing happening in a much more blatant and much more egregious way now. And I think it's really important to, like, genuinely not take bad faith arguments seriously, right? To incorporate that into your coverage in a way that I still see people not doing. Like, I mean, I remember all the time from the Clinton uh, email server uh, stuff that would happen is people would write in articles that Republicans are angry about or Republicans think, you know, treating it in in good faith. They were essentially pretending to believe that Republicans believed what they were pretending to believe when everybody knew they weren't, right? And no, you don't need to discount the arguments. In some ways, bad faith arguments can be true, right? So it's like the whole reason bad faith attacks on Hunter Biden are happening is that there really is something a little icky about what was going on there, but it's in bad faith. Like, it is not what is animating Republicans here, whereas Republicans really do think that Joe Biden is wrong about abortion. He's wrong about gun regulation. He's wrong about tax policy. Like, that's what American politics is about. And you should cover the political contest as if what is going on here is there is an argument about abortion and guns and tax policy and health care and environmental regulation and not cover it as if there is an argument about uh, nepotism. Because, like, there isn't, right? right? And, like, that's what's—it's useful not to, not to just fact-check, like, what's true and what's not, but to try to accurately portray what are the stakes in politics, what are the driving forces of the coalitions, what's going to happen if there's turnover in office, and, and what's really going on here, rather than just focusing on the talking points du jour. Because what candidates trying to win do is they come up with stuff that they think will motivate— um, confused people who don't have clear ideological priorities, but the political coalitions themselves have very clear ideological priorities. And it's like, it's good to focus on that. Yeah, I think that one thing I would add here is that one of the challenges we have is that there are good faith and bad faith ways of approaching our politics. But I think one thing that we have in general is that sometimes we think that someone else's politics are entirely made up of bad faith. Uh You know, occasionally I get asked like, you know, well, like, the reason why they're conservatives is because they're bad people. Or the the corresponding, like, Democrats are just bad people, and that's why they do things, is because they're bad people. Which, let's just, let, that's a really dipshit framing, like, it, for anyone to be making. To make, you know, I, when I was teaching my class at the University of Chicago, one thing that I always talk to students is like, okay, someone has your exact po- opposite politics, but they came to that politics in the exact same way that you did. You know, they came through their belief system in the same weird miasma of, like, I don't like as I did, you know, listening to a lot of Rage Against the Machine and then, like, becoming an evangelical Christian and then becoming not an evangelical Christian, but then turning up here. And someone else did that but came to the exact opposite conclusion. And I think it's worth noting that, like, you know, politicians are not 
voters. We need to separate how sometimes politicians talk about their politics. It's a different kind of politics than how voters think about it. Voters are not the same kind of, you know, single-minded entities who are like the Marcos Rubio of the world who become libertarians and then not libertarians really quickly. Voters are more complex, and I think that's worth keeping in mind as well. This and and a corollary to that, and something that I think you do really well in particular, Jane, is it's important to take ideas seriously and to talk about you know the to talk about kind of the strongest form of an argument while being clear-eyed about when that argument is not is either not the reason that the people in power are doing something or is being used as a kind of like smokescreen for something else. You know, you it it requires thinking about movements as as coalitions and thinking structurally about the relationship between ideas, people, and institutions. But there is a way to really dig into the intellectual frameworks for right. things without pretending that every single person who signs on to that is bill like, of goods yeah. has thought through that exact same process. Yes. So the weeds experiences a surge in popularity. You're elected president in 2020. You take a detour on your way to the inauguration after party, sign an executive order. What's in the order? Wait, so we just be, we become collectively president? Like, oh, that, that gets you. around the age issue. Because obviously, <laughs> like, if Jane or I is elected president, we have some constitutional issues that were not addressed in an expeditious enough manner by or the Maybe courts. Matt would be our regent. Like, oh, yes. Serving yes. until you guys uh, reach but, but the my other answer to this is that keying off another question we were asked, I, I guess this is technically not an executive order, but I would issue, I would... I would ensure the issuance of an OLC opinion declaring that it is the view of the executive branch that liking Cincinnati chili is not an impeachable offense. Because seriously, you people, like, just I let people live. Exactly. Like, I don't understand why Cincinnati chili became, like, the— ba- Like, it's not—I have seen a lot of things that I find objectionable. Like, I think the concept that people put— bell peppers in the oven and then fill them with things. Like, that's, to me, horrifying. But the fa- the look on both of your faces tells me I'm lactose alone in this. Lactose tolerance is wasted on the lactose tolerant. This makes I'm me so saying, upset. But I'm just saying, so like, what's your executive eat. order? Well, that would be just it, is that perhaps I would sign an executive order barring me from signing any more executive orders. Like, if I, if I want things done, I gotta, you know, I have to go be Lyndon Bain Johnston. I have to go be tall and threatening and yell at people on Air Force One by gently hiking up my chair to be taller than them. I also, and also I whip your dick out. <laughs> <laughs> We've all read yes. Robert Caro. This okay. isn't shocking. That is both accurate and also not something I would do. <laughs> <laughs> this actually, this takes us to a slightly more serious question, or at least a question that it is harder to take in a jokey direction, which was from Jake Cohn. Congress has slowly ceded power to the executive branch along with occasional presidential power grabs. A lot of this is the result of vague wording and policy. How vague should Congress actually be in wording legislation, and how much power is too much regulatory power in the hands of the executive? This is a really, really, really good question that there is no answer to that could fit in an Ask Us Anything podcast episode. But the one point that I'll make is that there are, I think— It's not—what we're dealing with right now is not just a question of the executive branch versus the legislative branch in, you know, a checks and balances framework, but how formal is the executive branch decision-making process, and what are the 
pre-policy issuance and post-policy issuance avenues for external, like, input or validation. There's a big, big, big difference between a very aggressive regulatory state, which has to follow the Administrative Procedures Act. You know, in most cases, you have to, like, put out the notice of a proposed rulemaking, a notice of proposed rulemaking. You have to have the public comment period. You have to actually go through all of the public comments and, you know, have a paper trail of doing your best to respond to them in, you know, a, a decent amount of good faith, et cetera, et cetera. That leads to a much more formalized and, you know, much more transparent and much broader input level of things than kind of sub-regulatory rulemaking in terms of just standard operating procedures that are issued as written guidance, you know, at the agency level, which in turn is more formal insofar as you can, like, at least challenge that in court. You can actually leak FOIA doc—you know, you can you can FOIA for things, you can leak documents, et cetera, than just exercises of discretion by individual government actors. Like, law, you know, any law enforcement agency has a great— amount of discretion in which violations of the law they pursue, and you don't actually get to challenge the decision to spend resources on X and not Y in, you know, in a judicial context at all or in a legislative context at all. And so, you know, what we're dealing with in the 21st century, given how much of it has kind of been focused on the executive power in law enforcement and in national security, isn't the regulatory state, it's the discretionary state. So, keying off that distinction a little bit, I, I think it's a misnomer in most of these, in most in the regulatory context, to understand this as Congress ceding power to the executive branch. I think that that's a formulation that people have come up with that, that misportrays what's happening. And that typically what Congress has attempted to do, right, is create expertise technocratic agencies that are supposed to make decisions based on objective criteria in accordance with priorities that were dictated by Congress, right? So the idea was that instead of—Congress is a book composed of politicians, right? So politicians make decisions about, like, what would you like to see happen in governance, right? Congress is not composed of public health professionals, Right? So Congress's idea was that they should pass a law saying that scientists and public health professionals should assess the state of human knowledge about air pollution and then promulgate rules that advance certain priorities. That to me is not at all a quote-unquote ceding of power to the president or to the executive branch, right? They are creating an expert agency which is supposed to make determinations and go do things. What's then happened is that the judicial branch, via some notions of unitary executive and various other things, has clawed back, has actually taken away Congress's ability to empower technical experts and ceded that power back up to the White House, right? And they will then sometimes characterize this because in the, like— In the conservative vision of the Constitution, this idea of technical expertise, like, doesn't exist, right? And it's just per se illegitimate to say that something has been outsourced to objective criteria and to technical panels, that there is only interbranch conflict, and that Congress is either illegitimately delegating power 
which should be stopped, or having delegated the power, the president can just do whatever, right? And I think that that's that's wrong, right? I mean, you can you can make believe that that is in a disagreement that's rooted in the text of the Constitution or something, but it's really just a disagreement about like should we have effective regulatory agencies or should we not? And conservatives think we shouldn't, right? Conservatives think that if businessmen poison children's brains and it destroys uh, people's lives, that like that's great. Right, that it would be really bad to prevent businesses from poisoning people. I don't know why they think that. Like maybe Jane can tell us. But like at every turn, they try to make it impossible to create effective institutions to deal with that kind of thing. The idea that Congress should make on a month-by-month basis like highly technical judgments about which kinds of particles are damaging to human health and how damaging they are and what kinds of filtration remedies would be – like – That doesn't make sense, right? And it's not that Congress has, like, abjured its power. They've made a sensible decision that, like, this is not what they should be spending their time on. And the effort to say that – to undermine the legitimacy of that project, I think, is, like, is really really bad for the country. Now, what you have in a lot of foreign systems is you just don't have this same kind of well-defined distinction between the legislature and the executive because the cabinet ministers also serve in parliament and blah, blah, blah. And there are some advantages to that. I mean, like one advantage to that is you don't have all this time wasted on like kind of phony metaphysical controversies. And you can also actually just talk about like what is the policy and does it make some kind of sense? So Stephen Gonzalez asked, uh, I have the sinking feeling that no matter the results of the 2020 election, the most likely consequence will be that we're in it for a decade of civil unrest similar to late 60s, early 70s. Importantly, I don't mean the new civil war rhetoric increasingly espoused by the right as responses to impeachment, but more lone mass shootings, open carry demonstrations, ratcheted up protests, Occupy Wall Street-like camps, politician media targeting by ideological domestic terrorists, eco-terrorism. Agree or disagree? Why or why not? Um, I think the the first and foremost, one thing that when we talk about the late 1960s, early 1970s that we don't discuss enough when we try to make comparisons is the insane number of bombings that took place in the 1960s, 1970s. I know um, our colleague Dylan Matthews has talked about this a lot. And this was a you know, a phenomenon across the West. But, like, bombings, if you look at, like, New York Times or San Francisco Chronicle articles from the late 60s, early 1970s, bombings just became rote. Like, you would read New York Times article be like, oh, like, three people were killed in a bomb attack in Baltimore or something. Be like, oh, like, oh, okay, that happened. Like, the idea. And the number of groups behind the bombings and even, like, the exact reasoning or mechanism for those bombings was, like, not really detailed. And so I think it's difficult when one of the challenges of being a history person or being into history is that you spend a lot, like, I think a lot about, you know, what is there a kind of a historical corollary to what we're enjoying now? And there is not. And there rarely is. And so I think that one challenge is that, like, it would not look like the 1960s or 1970s for many reasons. For, I mean, for the existence of bomb squads, for just, like, our understandings of what this would look like, it would not look like that. However, I do think that one of the real, you know, one of the things about this country that I think I think of as being a good thing in many respects, but can also turn into a bad thing, is that, you know, we have the freedom to be wrong en masse. And by that, I mean the fact that, you know, at this very moment, um, 
you know, you may not have heard of this, but uh, you probably should have. There is a mem- former, hopefully soon to be former, uh, member of Washington state government who was uh, er- like helping to support a separatist movement in eastern Washington to create a essentially a Christian theocratic state in eastern Washington. If you know anything about the Pacific Northwest for a lot of kind of separatist organizations, uh, white nationalist groups, and others, kind of sovereign citizen groups, Eastern Washington has been viewed as kind of like the, like, mecca of a place, you know, kind of the idealized space where there aren't that many people and ideally not that many non-white people and or Jewish people. Um, And so, you know, he was someone who was sharing a lot of this kind of new Civil War materials and helping to support efforts to fight the federal government. I think that there's a possibility that we might not be returning to the 60s or 70s, but the stylings we could be returning to are that of the early to mid-1990s, which, as folks may not be aware, that before the Oklahoma City bombing, there were kind of a back and forth of conflicts between separatist groups and the federal government that were handled very poorly by the federal government and not taken seriously enough. But, you know, you saw Ruby Ridge, you saw a couple of standoffs uh, a little bit earlier with a group called The Order in um, the in the West um, that was inspired by the Turner Diaries, a white nationalist screed. Um, so I think I could see that kind of, um, you know, on a case-by-case basis of that kind of violence. But um, I think it's not going to look like the 60s. Personally, the concern that I would have would be the kind of not fully ideologicalized, but just like a combination of ideology, conspiracy theory, and just loners and misfits being attracted to each other. You know, I think that QAnon is a bigger, is a more immediate threat to kind of engage in criminal or terroristic activity for that reason. And we are seeing some things like there was a story recently of a, you know, of QAnon members being arrested as part of a conspiracy to kind of kidnap a child who had been put in protective services back for its mother because the because the kid's mother was a member of QAnon and was convinced that the child was being, yes. you know, brainwashed by pedophiles. That's That kind of, you know, just small weirdness is something that I think we, you know, we see a parallel to in some of the somewhat ideological, somewhat aesthetic, like, video game rhetoric of, mass, of you know, recent stochastic mass shootings where there's clearly a model that people are gravitating toward and they may not necessarily have been brought there by an ideological trajectory, but, like, that's the form of expression that they're finding most potent and most appropriate. That said, I think when this is something where it's really, really important to hold whatever prediction or dread you have really, really lightly and be willing to update it. Like, I spent a lot of 2016 worrying about civil unrest after the election, and that did not pan out in the way I worried it was going to. And I think it's really just because this is the kind of thing where it's easy for worry about this to have a meaningful impact on your life or to have a for your worry about this to have a meaningful impact on the lives of other people around you if you're expressing it and other people are more prone to worry than you are. You know, it's just... It's one thing to kind of think about this in the abstract, but definitely check yourself if it's something where you are really changing how you live your daily life because you're concerned about civil unrest. And think very carefully about what is leading you to make that assessment and what might change it. I 
I'm really fascinated by, in the Trump era, the extent of psychological distress that various people seem to be feeling. Yep. That, I mean, I have heard from multiple uh, therapists that they hear frequently from their patients about Trump. And not to paint with too broad a brush, but I mean, I'm talking about like therapists who uh, are not in network for major insurance companies and whose clients, I think, are not suffering Trump-related distress because they lost Medicaid benefits in Arkansas due to work requirements, right? Not people who are experiencing psychological distress because, um, you know, uh, their spouse has been deported, right? And Obviously, if you are in a concrete way suffering because of government policy, like, absolutely be upset about that. Like, that, that is what we – like, that's the essence of political life. And obviously, like, there are people who are being negatively impacted in a concrete, real, tangible way by Trump. But there are an incredible number of people who seem to be psychologically besieged by the Trump-era news cycle. And I really think that, like, if you're in that position, like, you need to – you need to change something about what you're doing. You know, like there is no point in consuming news in a way that just makes you upset, right? If you consume news in a way that helps you take some kind of action and then you can say, I did this on Saturday and I think it will help people on Sunday and the reason I did it is that I learned about something the week before from what I'm reading. Like that's great. Right? Like, inform yourself about the world, take action, feel better about the world that you are playing in the world, uh, and, you know, be, like, empowered and, and constructive. And we've seen a lot of that, right? I mean, we've seen new po- forms of political organizing. We've seen unexpected special election candidacies. We've seen a surge of women running for office. Like, like all of that is amazing. I think this, like, oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. When, as Jane was saying, like, objectively speaking, there have been many more chaotic times right. in America. In life in the not that distant past. But I you think know, that, and something yeah. about media consumption habits is like causing problems in people's heads. I, when I'll, it should be a solution. Like getting information about the world is a good idea, but if all that it's doing is like making you feel sad. Then, then that's not that's not helping. Like, don't don't just like refresh stories about fires in Australia. Like, like try to do something. I also think um, Catherine Miller, who I have known for a long time, and she's at BuzzFeed. She wrote a really smart article last year about how time seemed to be changing and how the interpretation of time was shifting. And, you know, I think everyone has said something about how, like, oh, it's 2020, like when 2010 feels like it was three seconds ago. And I think that some part of that could be responsible for that sense of anxiety, um, especially also I think that you know, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you had, you know, if there was a bomb attack in your city, that news would be covered by your city's newspaper. The Cincinnati Enquirer or the dearly departed Cincinnati Post, R.I.P., um, it died like 20 years ago, but I still miss it because it was the evening paper and I liked that concept. You, you know, the Cincinnati Post would cover it. The New York Times did not need to come in and be like, all right, we've got this handled. I think that the nationalization of local news has really contributed to a sense that 
there are terrible things happening all the time that will impact you. Because one of the hard things to learn is that in a country of nearly 400 million people, something terrible probably is happening. But something awesome is probably happening. Something entirely neutral is also happening. And so I think it's a good idea to keep an eye on your news habits, especially you know, when you, and I know I've had this issue too, because it's, I mean, it's challenging also because we're in this industry. But when I see people on Facebook who are like, I can't believe this terrible thing is happening in 2019. And then the article is one, it didn't, or in 2020. And the article is like, one, it didn't happen in 2020. And two, it's happening in like somewhere very far away from wherever this person is, where I'm like, I, but I get that it is indeed terrible, but also is it, are you, are you helping ease the terribleness by talking about how terrible it is? It's with media habits and that sense of anxiety about how time is shifting just because of kind of the nationalization of news and the speed of news and the all-encompassing nature of news. I think that that that's contributing to that sense of anxiety. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So I want to ask Dara which of George Lucas's changed to Star Wars have improved the universe. Well, th- this this was a wrong answers only question. Wrong answers which is only. Great, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think you know, I the it has to be the, the introduction of a microbiological mechanism for the Force. Oh, see, I could not make that <laughs> argument. I can make the argument that showing us a mobile job of the hut in Episode yes. Four makes it. I wouldn't say poignant, but certainly illustrative that we have an essentially immobile Jabba the Hutt in episode six, speaking to the kind of lazy uh He's just on sail barges right, all right, the like, time. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, you're, he's not he's not truly an evil figure. He just is a local warlord who has had few enough challenges to his power that he can just indulge, like, extremely boring base instincts. And that says something about a banal evil that—or not, not, not really a banal evil, but, like, a grotesque, right. you know, kind of— Badness that right. isn't pure evil that we don't see elsewhere in the Star Wars a traditionally very Manichaean universe. I agree. Um, <laughs> I want Matt to to defend the midichlorians. I would say I can't. I can't even. The one change that I'm like, all right, that's okay. Um, but it, it it's an it's a change that 
requires me to acknowledge the existence of the prequels, so I don't even want to do that. But it has to, you know, when you see at the end of Return of the Jedi and you see um, Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Yoda, and the change, do you, yeah, and then, but all of a sudden, they're like, oh, that's Hayden Christensen. Oh, which is, for the f- series, accurate. Because, but also, I don't us like it. from decanonizing the prequel trilogy. <laughs> exactly. And then George Lucas did some terrible things to the music in Return of the Jedi that I'm very upset about, but we'll, we'll move on. Anyway. I can't, I can't, I, I'm not, I'm not the right person. I just rewatched the prequels and the exposition of the midichlorians is terrible. <laughs> but as a substantive change, right, there is clearly a biological basis to force strength. Otherwise, the whole story doesn't make sense. Um, you know, going back to the core films, I mean, not even discussing the sort of controversial ping-ponging between uh, Last Jedi and, and Rise of Skywalker at this point, right? Like, the whole premise of the film universe is that there is something special about the biological relationship between Darth Vader, Luke, and Leia. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, none of the activities make any kind of sense. And so even though a lot of people for years have been dunking on the midichlorians, it's like appropriate and correct to create some kind of micro-founded basis for that. It's also a reminder that the story takes place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So all of these people who we would call humans are, are not like biologically humans as we understand the species and should differ in some kind of substantive way that is not obvious to us as a person watching Mark Hamill and, uh, you know, all all those other guys out there acting. And so a difference is they have midichlorians who are symbiotic with them and who uh, create this human force interface. And that is a a, a good explanation of some otherwise, you know, baffling backstory. Okay, you've definitely successfully convinced me that any Star Wars fan dunking on midichlorians is throwing in very hard with Ryan Johnson's view of force sensitivity as a democratic, you know, a, a capacity that, like, that is distributed more broadly than we think. Right. Now, if we, if we all want to yes. throw in with a revisionist account that exists in what's now one out of— Nine films. Nine Although slash 11 films. Although I do think, films. and one of, one of the things that I think is underrated about The Rise of Skywalker is that it does commit fairly strongly to Finn's force sensitivity. Yes, yes. Now, now, look, and it would, of course, be interesting if they had built on the Johnson vision that there was some kind of Jedi big lie behind this. But what, what is clear, though, is that that's what that hypothesis would be. Yes. That the movies, all the rest of the movies have been very consistent on this point. That's not just like a late Lucas intervention. Um, Because otherwise, like, Obi-Wan's just sitting on his butt in the desert (laughs) doing nothing. But then when Luke shows up, he knows this is a guy, right, who has the genes to overthrow the Empire. Right. Oh, man. This reminds me. If it's a biological argument, that gets into... I don't. I don't like that. <laughs> this. Is I'm hoping this is what Charles Murray's like, next book is about. Have to, it's like, just about the Jedi. There is a difference between <laughs> biological and purely genetic, right? right? Like, you probably do want to make the argument that, and I think this is why those of us who really loved how the Last Jedi treated Rey's yeah. parentage and really didn't like the reversal in the Rise of Skywalker on that. You know, you don't. You can believe in something being biological and still believe that it's going to happen to somebody who no one right. has ever heard of. But, you know, I think that we we can see that the Jedi Council is, like, a fairly multi-species right. entity. At the same time, it's very clear that the reason that uh, Werner Herzog is interested in Baby Yoda is because there's something special about Baby Yoda's species. So, yeah. 
This is, how, this is like how the Redwall series is actually just about biological determinism because you can't have a bad otter or a good rat. Anyway, if you want to discuss just Redwall, please email me separately. <laughs> um, Brad Elke, just because I want to end us on a, a positive note, said, there have been a few things discussed on the weeds that can be placed in the general theme of a seemingly limited policy that has unexpectedly outsized beneficial consequences, such as removing lead from gasoline, the iodization of salt, and ICU care given to undersized infants. Are there any other examples out there you can think of that haven't been covered on the show yet, either public health examples like above or something else? This is a paper I read recently was presented at the American Economic Association uh, event uh, just last week. Um, and, and so they looked at what happened in uh, Los Angeles a few years ago. There was a major natural gas leak, and it happened to occur in one of LA's most scale neighborhoods. So everybody freaked out. The gas company agreed that they would install um, commercial-grade air filters in all the schools within a five-mile radius of the gas leak. Uh, While this was going on, they also tested everything for gas contamination, and they found that there was no gas contamination anywhere uh, because natural gas is much lighter than air, so it it just goes straight up. There's no way it was going to get into a school five miles away. But the parents were freaked out. The local politicians were freaked out, so they put in the air filters anyway. Um, And then they show, because you can look, because it was, you know, a sharp discontinuity, right? Five miles and then no air filters. Um, And so inside the air filtration zone, kids' test scores went up by 0.2 standard deviations for these air filters, which were removing natural gas contamination that wasn't even there, right? So they took baseline levels of indoor air pollution, filtered them out, and produced a really substantial test score gains at the cost of, it comes out to about um, $1,000 per classroom, uh, which is like nothing compared to things people normally recommend doing in education policy, right? If you imagine, like, cut the class sizes, right? Like, that would be so expensive. Even, like, provide services to the kids, right? You couldn't provide anything for, like, $1,000 per, per classroom. Um, huge benefits. And then the further shows, right, you talk about how generalizable this is. So L.A. is one of the worst air quality cities in America. So these are somewhat higher benefits than you might see in a lot of places. At the same time, this happened in a rich neighborhood. Uh, so this was one of the least polluted neighborhoods in Los Angeles. Uh, So could you get that big a benefit on average all across America? Probably not. But in America's poor neighborhoods, you could probably get a bigger benefit than that uh, for very cheap and also not just cheap, but really useful in educational context. Very, very, very scalable, right? Because like the factories that make these air filters, like they could definitely just make more. Right, if, if we had a big order for them, which is not true with like if we had superstar teachers, you would get – sorry, if you could replace every teacher who's well below average with an average teacher, you would get a roughly equivalent gain. Uh, but that's really hard to do, uh, whereas installing air filters, it seems like, would be really easy. So I, I have one. Um, it's an older one, but it's one that I'm fascinated by. Um So the first use of incubators to help premature babies actually happened at the World Exposition, essentially the World's Fair in Berlin in 1896, because the people, the doctor who suggested doing this, people thought it was pseudoscientific that babies might need help getting warm. So he was like, I'm going to prove it, but also give you a big show. So essentially he borrowed a group of premature babies because at the time, it's important to remember that before, like, 
1950 or so. But like being born premature was essentially like you were not going to make it. You, you, in some cases, doctors would heat up bricks and put them in the crib and just be like, "Good luck, baby." Um, but you know, he essentially set up this display of babies in incubators alongside you know, exhibitions. I, I have a reading here. Um, it was alongside exhibits for the Tyrolean yodelers. Um, and the Congo Village, which probably was exactly what you're thinking it is. But they called it um, Kuni's Child Hatchery, which in gen- in German is Kinderbrutenstalt. Um, but it became this giant success. All six babies who were in the hatchery survived. And the entire concept of how to keep premature babies alive was thus born by a guy who was like, I believe in this so much that I will let – I will do this at a essentially a circus. All right. All right. Out of the hatchery, uh, into the podcast zone. Uh, tell your friends, the weeds, It's uh, you, you can learn a lot about weird stuff on this show. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks to uh, Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Beerfeld, our producer, and the weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.